Nurses and Hypochondriacs, the podcast that brings nurse experts, patients, and hypochondriacs together to discuss hot topics in healthcare. And here is your host, Ercilia Pompilio. Welcome back, nurses and hypochondriacs. Thank you for listening. And thank you for giving us a rating on iTunes. If you haven't already given us a rating, go to iTunes and give us a five-star rating. We would so appreciate that. It's been crazy times here in California, especially Southern California. Southern California is literally on fire. It's been nuts. It's been difficult to breathe. Many people have lost their lives and or their homes. And uh, I had friends who were in near misses. They are still alive and still have their homes, but the fire was about 10 yards away. That's one of my friends had told me from her home. Um, so she thought she was going to lose her home. She became very, very lucky. And I know there's not so many lucky people out there. And if you are one of those unlucky people and have suffered a great loss from the fires here in California, please reach out to us at nursesandhypochondriacs at gmail.com. And we will help you as best as we can. At the, at the very least, we can help talk about your story and what happened to you and get you some resources or some support of some kind. In other news, Crazy Times Indeed, Nurses and Hypochondriacs podcast was accused of being a conspiracy theory podcast by a nurse, um, not only a nurse, but a nurse who has never listened to the podcast. And, uh, She was on Facebook, didn't like a post that I did, and it was my Facebook site for nurses and hypochondriacs. So if you don't like a post, you don't have to read it. I mean, you know, but she was so triggered. She went ahead and added all these comments and thought that people should share her opinion. And um, that's great in her world, but I guess in her world, she doesn't understand that people have different opinions and can support those opinions with research that is peer-reviewed. And uh, my thing is is cool. You want to come and uh, give me constructive criticism? I'm all for it. I grew up in an Italian family. I can take it. But listen to the podcast first. Because we've had no conspiracies that we've shared, as I remember. We've had uh, university professors come on, advanced practice nurses. We've had advocates Everybody that's come on has been legit. We've had tons of published authors, even a seven-time New York Times best-selling author. So challenge me all you want. But haters are going to be hating. What can I say? Let's get into the episode for this week. So it's November. So November is supposed to be all about men's health issues. And I I guess people grow mustaches in support of men's health and men's mental health. And today we're going to be talking about crisis helplines. So it's the suicide hotlines. And um, I'm just going to share some stats that I found on the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention website. And uh, no conspiracy there, I don't think. 
But they're saying that suicide is the 10th leading cause of death in the United States. There's about 44,965 deaths by American per year that have committed suicide. And for every one suicide, there's at least 25 attempts. And men die by suicide 3.53 times more often than women. And the rate of suicide is highest in middle-aged white men. And uh, so my guest today is a gentleman who has worked on the suicide hotline. And he's going by the name Ian. We're keeping him anonymous. And uh, so he was a full-time 40 hours a week staff employee at a suicide prevention center. And being a crisis line counselor for him was a passion project and not a job. Welcome to the show, Ian. Thank you. Glad to be here. <laughs> I'm a little winded. I had a lot of coffee. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And, uh, I know. When we, this is like my third take, but we're going to go with it. And uh, Ian was walking me through it, which was cool. I was like, he's so good at it. No, they they. they used to tell me, you got that NPR voice. Like, no, I don't. Like, yes, you do. You, do. you have a good voice. But you were just like calming me down. You're like, it's okay. Nobody's watching us. <laughs> um, so, so go ahead and, and tell us what brought you to working at a suicide prevention hotline. I mean, it's not a job for anyone. I don't think I could do it. Um, no, I didn't think that I could do it either. But um, I thought um, that... You know, I really wanted to do something meaningful in my life, not just work behind a desk or, um, or any job like that. I mean, not that those jobs aren't important, but it's just personally, um, I wanted to do something uh, definitely meaningful. You know, so, um, and I wasn't seeking it out actively. It just sort of, it was, for me, it was the universe talking to me, you know like gently guiding me towards what I should be doing. Um, so, um, yeah, some, I, somebody got a hold of my resume and said, hey, are you, you know, are you interested in becoming a crisis line counselor? And I said, sure, sign me up. Well, what about your resume, like, popped out at them? What did you have on there that qualified you to be a crisis counselor? Uh, the fact that... Um, I was a bilingual. That was really it, I think. <laughs> um, they, they were looking for bilingual counselors. And um, um, I just happened to fit the criterion. And, um, but then, obviously, there's that interview process, training, really intensive training. Um, and then um, you definitely, um, you definitely uh, learn um, on the job. You know, nothing can prepare you for the job. You just got to do it. Uh, but the training definitely helped. So what was the training like? You said before when we talked, it took about like six weeks. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, so uh, what I, uh, my training schedule was uh, basically just a weekend, you know, Saturday. Um, and what is Saturdays and Sundays? I believe so. Yeah, I think too. Um, I'm, I'm forgetting now. Um, anyway, it was just a lot of hours because <laughs> it was you know, more than a year ago. So. Right. Um, but it was just a lot of hours, um, not just, you know, um, going to the training, attending in person, but also out of class, um, studying hours and just, yeah, it was a lot of material to, 
study. Um, but it was worth it, definitely worth it. So, so do you want to talk about, okay, so you're trained, like um, they gave you scenarios, of course, right? They taught you how to talk to people that were in crisis or um, like uh, on the verge of committing suicide. Mm-hmm. Right. We did a lot of role plays, um, which is really effective. Um, and, um, and this is all over the phone. You know, it's not in person. So um, when you first start out, you know, you can refer to your notes right, when you're a newbie. So um, it's not as if, you know, you go in there without any help. You know, there are supervisors listening in and um, everybody else, you know, there to help you. So, yeah, but it's uh, role plays were the key, I think, in terms of preparing you for um, the actual calls. So do you remember, like, your first day on the job or your first week on the job and what that was like? Yeah, the first day. Um, it's kind of funny because... Um, I think you're naturally going to be nervous on your first day. If you're not nervous, then I think there's something wrong with you because your first call could potentially be somebody with a gun pointed at their head. Um, what was kind of funny to me was how everybody was saying, oh, yeah, you'll be fine. Like, what? Wait a minute. You guys are crisis line counselors, and you're just telling me you're like dismissing my anxiety. What's going on here? You know, like they weren't practicing <laughs> their their skills in comforting me. It was so funny because I was just so nervous. I wasn't showing it, but I was. Maybe that's why they thought, you know, oh yeah, you'll do fine. Um, but no, I was super anxious, um, and nobody really comforted me. And I thought that was kind of funny, even though <laughs> I was surrounded by people who are supposed to be very empathetic. Um, so that was kind of the ironic part of my first day. So what was the goal with you working as a crisis counselor? Because I I was reading an article, um, about a crisis, uh, helpline in Atlanta. And one of the things that it did say on there was that their job was really, they understood that they couldn't help everyone. Um, so is that what they told you? I mean, what, what's the main goal of the crisis hotline? Um, so what they told us was that, you know, we're, we're not therapists, obviously. Uh, we're just there to um, react as, a, you know, we're pretty much like first aid kid. Somebody gets hurt and boom, you, you do what you can to just get them um, um, safe. You know, the safety really is the key. Um, you can't, within 20 to 30 minutes, convince the person, oh, yeah, your life is going to be great, you know, if you just uh, can somehow look beyond your troubles uh, that's happening you know, uh, to them right now. But, no, it's, it's about just getting them through that moment. If they can keep themselves alive for the next few hours, you know, that night, or even just 30 minutes, you know, that, that's our goal. Just keep them safe. So can you walk me through what a call would be like? Let's say you get a call and, um, you know, first off, do you know what the percentages were of your experience? Were they men, women, 
teenagers? I mean, who was calling the helpline? Um, I don't have the stats, but um, I would say it was mostly just from your experience. I think it was mostly female. Um, and um, during the training, they tell you like every call is different, and that is very true. Like every call is different, um, and so it's really not about the demographics or uh, the gender, but it's just. But um, I mean, from experience, I would say that it was uh, more female than male. Um, but that didn't really matter. Like the gender really didn't matter when you're actually taking calls. Um, most of the time, it didn't matter. It was just—it's really about that just showing empathy and um, making sure that they stay safe. What I also uh, read through my research is the most important part was to be a good listener. So were you taught to be a good listener and just listen to what people had to say? Uh, I mean, you brought up um, this, you brought up empathy, which I think is really great, which is very lacking in our society um, and feeling for that person. Um, yeah. So listening is, I would say, like close to 100% of, the, you know, uh, of what the job calls for. You just have to sit there and listen. I mean, but we call it active listening. You're not right. just there to, you know, take, you know, just to listen to them for the sake of listening to them. No, you got to pay attention to every single thing that they're saying. Take notes so that you can refer back to some of the important things and, and use that to uh, make them understand that their lives matter. So, um, yeah, active listening, can be, it could be exhausting. I can imagine um, in one of the articles that I read with the call center in Atlanta, it said that they had a Zen space, like a Zen office where they were able to go and de-stress um, because it, it, I, I can imagine the stress um, is pretty intense. Like uh, one of the um, articles that I was reading said that they get about a thousand calls per day plus. Okay. Did you like, do you know, how many calls would you get in a day? Like what was your, did you ever do a hashtag <laughs> hash mark of how many calls you were getting? Okay. So uh, not every call is from a person, you know, right on the edge of like wanting to jump. You know? um, that actually happens very rarely. Um, there um, lots of calls about anxiety, you know, just depression and, um, um, if I work, um, let's see, on average, I would say in an eight hour period, um, like between maybe 10 to 15, I would say calls. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, but, um, still quite a bit. Yeah. But, um, cause on average, how much time would you spend with them? Uh, average, I think it was, um, close to 30 minutes like anywhere from between 20 and 30 minutes and um yeah and and the thing is um we got all kinds of different calls we get uh, sometimes we get a wrong number we get prank calls uh we get lots of hang-ups we get info you know info calls just people calling to see hey you know how do i find out more about you know helping people who are depressed um, we get a lot of third-party calls where somebody's concerned about their friends, family members, relatives. Um, and uh, yeah, so just a mixture of all kinds of different 
That's interesting. I was watching a YouTube video today about a, a woman who worked at a crisis center and she was talking about prank calls <laughs> and how it, how disruptive it is to the whole system and how it works with the call center. Because she said there, at her call center, there was sort of a delay, uh, which then means that somebody who really is in crisis would have to wait. I, I guess that's how her system worked. Um, my understanding of the system is that, um, you know, especially when they call that 800 number, because that's a uh, nation, uh, nationwide number. So, um, and based on the caller's um, phone number, it gets routed automatically. And so because of that, there could be up to maybe a five minute wait, I believe. I think, I, I don't know the average, um, but I believe it takes at least a minute or two for the calls to get routed. So uh, one of the prank calls I remember, I mean, there were really good prank calls, but uh, this one particular call I remember because uh, um, this guy said, uh, can, you, can you talk to my cat? He's really sad. Uh, I think he's going to kill himself. Can you please talk to my cat? Definitely a prank call, no doubt. I mean, we need a <laughs> prank call, right? So um, I said, well, I mean, instead of getting upset that this was a prank call and going like, okay, you know, this is a, um, this is lying just for you know, um, people in crisis. And instead of chiding like, him, you know, I went along with it. I said, well, I'm sorry, but we don't have anybody who speaks feline right now. Um, <laughs> you can call back. Like, oh, really? You don't have anybody right now? I was like, no, sorry. Yeah. Um, I mean, we got other, you know, bilinguals, but not feline. That's one language we, you know, don't have access to. <laughs> or I said something like that. And um, that, that's, I remember that. Oh, another thing I remember, this guy, I thought he was saying that he has a pencil in his ear. And I thought it was a legitimate emergency call, right? Like, oh, you got to go to the doctor. But he kept saying, no, I got a, I got a ear. I'm sorry. I got a pencil in my ear. Um, so again and again, I'm hearing the word ear, right? But he was saying actually uh, something else. I don't know why I heard ear because I thought, I, you know how when you hear something, uh, even though the other person is saying something else, because there's no way that the other person is saying right. what, uh-huh. what he actually was saying, I got a pencil up my ass. <laughs> a prank call, right? No doubt a prank call. And I thought he was saying, I got a pencil in my ear. I thought I was treating it for the first, like, I don't know, a few seconds. Like it was a real emergency call. And maybe he was trying to kill himself by. <laughs> right. <laughs> Sticking a pencil up yeah. his rear end. Yeah. yeah. So I said, Oh, you got a pencil in your ass. It's like, yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, well, are you bleeding? You know, I just went along with it. Right. He's like, no. Is it hurting? No. Okay. Well, I, you know what? I think maybe you should call 911 and uh, go see your doctor. Instead. Right. Yeah. Instead of getting upset, like, like, oh, you know, like, this is a brand. That call. does happen. It does happen. It's so. Like, uh, pencil up the ass? Yeah. Well, <laughs> and other things. <laughs> right. Oh, my yep. other things. Yep, does happen, right? So, um, yeah, I remember could be potentially life-threatening sometimes, but that's why you need to go to the emergency room and get it taken care of. Right. So, um, <laughs> yeah, there were some really cool prank calls, uh, but I remember those two. How many people right. were work, were working at um, per shift at your call center? Um, depends on the shift because um, the call volume increases uh, towards uh, um, later in the day. Um, but anywhere from it could be three 
to 12, 13, um, depending on the, uh, the time of the day. Oh, interesting. Um, in my research, I was reading that people have a misconception about suicide uh, in who, what time of the year is actually very busy for a crisis hotline. Like people think during the holidays is a busy time, um, but that's not exactly true. Uh, I was reading that in the springtime is when the higher volume gets there because they said that usually during the holidays, people are surrounded with family, friends, uh, and then, yes, they may be having symptoms of depression, but they feel that they can come out of it in the springtime. And so when they don't, I guess when their moods don't get better, that is when they feel that they are in crisis. Um, right. I remember, I think, reading um, about that um, research or article. Um, but um, in my experience, we were busy every day. It didn't really matter. Because you were in Los Angeles, right? <laughs> right. Uh, so, um, no, we were constantly busy. Um, and... and um, I remember the call volume going up by almost um, 100% because of, I forget exactly what happened, but something um, happened and then just the call volume just skyrocketed and we were just struggling to keep up with the number of calls. So do you think that any type of um, natural disaster uh, going on or even with the suicide of Anthony Bourdain and Kate Spade. Oh, definitely. It shows. Yeah. Um, I have studies here that shows with that there's an increase of people calling the call center and they're, they're speculating that it's either because um, they're promoting it more, they're promoting the numbers more and they're advertising it more, or it could just be almost copycat. Um, right. So when there is this um, um, media surge, <laughs> yeah, definitely a lot of media coverage about you know celebrities and um, and suicide. Right then, the calling um, definitely uh, spikes up. Um, the fact that they've been, I think, um, publicizing the number. A lot, the uh, the one in the number um, a lot. I think that definitely has to do with the fact that the call volume seems to be always going up and not down. I just have a, a story to share, which is uh, a little bit funny. Um, my friend's son, uh, he's a teenager. He he's on Twitter, and one day, uh, several months ago, he put on Twitter that he had called the suicide prevention hotline, but he was placed on hold as number 25. So wow. Wow. <laughs> he's not in California. Okay. Um, I just, I thought it was a bit, you know, um, I didn't know if he was trying to be funny or what, but he started a Twitter fire on his account and I reached out to him privately and asked him, I go, are you Joe? Is this a joke? Um, what's going on? And um, he said, no, it's not a joke. This, I did actually call the suicide prevention hotline and I was placed on hold as number 25. Okay. And um, 
so he said that he was just feeling very emotional, uh, very sad. Right. Um, he didn't actually have a plan. And so I immediately contacted his mother, which she was in the same home <laughs> at the that time. That happens a lot. Yeah. yeah, and she was in the same home. And she, had, she knew um, that he was feeling emotional. She knew he was going through this. But I, I also told her, you know, he kind of is alerting people. Um, and this is what happens. She went to go talk to him and then he called me. She's like, Oh, he wants to talk to you. And he just started crying. He apologized. I was like, that's okay. You just, you know, and his whole concern was that he felt that he could not express himself emotionally, that he was being teased for being a male, um, and having emotions. So he was very confused about that. Yeah. Um, that's a shame that guys get teased or made fun of, um, for, expressing emotions i mean come on you know so, but then depending on what the age of uh, his friends uh, are I mean, yeah I mean, boys can be really cruel right right and i you know and it's a tough society there's just so much change and so much shifting uh and we have the old patriarchal paradigm where it's like the boys don't cry you know and we that was made very popular by the cure uh, <laughs> right. back in the 80s right, right. oh yeah okay. you're my era yep yep <laughs> um, but, you know but, uh, but uh just wanted to go back to um his um uh, being on hold um i my understanding of how that works is that um you don't actually put anybody on hold if you're calling on the phone that it will get routed to the available um, center, even though it might take a few minutes. Um, maybe he was doing a chat, like online chat. In that case, yes, you will get a number saying, oh yeah, your number, blah. Um, oh, that's interesting. Yeah, so you could- That's a great uh, point, because you can text as well, right? Or you can chat. You don't um, actually have to call to speak mm -hmm. to a person. Exactly, right. So a lot of people who have anxiety about talking on the phone, um, they would uh, use the other uh, chat service. And um, um, yeah, so when you use that, it would definitely tell you, yeah, your number you know, 30 or something like that. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I'm not exactly sure um, on the whole details of it. I just thought it was a little bit, it was interesting. I thought it was funny. Right. Um, it could have been maybe a, a suicide prevention center. That's not part of Lifeline. Right. I don't, I, like I said, I don't know exactly who he called, what he called. Um, but it, it was just the thing there. And I go, it sounds like you're, it sounds like the beginning of a joke. <laughs> right. <laughs> like you would say, he was like, so I guess I won't be committing suicide today because I'm yeah. number 25. Yeah. Um, <laughs> or uh, the whole music was like, you know, Jump by Van Halen or, um, <laughs> or Another One Bites the Dust by, uh, what is it, Queen? Yeah. Um. <laughs> Right. Yeah, you don't want to play that kind of whole music. Wow. <laughs> sorry, sorry. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. No, because um, dark humor is so important to us. Uh, dark humor. So you, we were talking yesterday on the phone, and um, you were telling me about how you would lighten up the <laughs> yeah. the office. <laughs> yeah. Which I thought was very, very interesting. Yeah. Um, well, because it was therapeutic for me too uh, to do all these silly things. Um, oh, I'm always silly. Trust me. Um, I work in. This is why I love working in pediatrics because I can be myself mm -hmm. and I can be silly. Um, and it's kids and they get it. And 
um, you know, the sillier, the cooler I am, the more jokes I say, the more that they can relate to me. You know, I could fist pump them, I can high five yeah. them, and, it, you know, it's, it's an all a cool environment. Where it doesn't really work too well is when you're working with adults in the pharmaceutical <laughs> world. Uh, and I used to get in trouble for that all the time for being wacky because I wasn't professional enough. You ought to be professional. Like, I had to talk like this. Um, and I was like, well, that's not me. And you knew when you hired me that I was a pediatric nurse practitioner. Hello. It's like hiring a clown. <laughs> um, is it okay for me to curse on this podcast? Yes. You know, okay. I am um, open to people being themselves. It's, okay. This is what this podcast is all about. Okay. Um, so well, go ahead. Them. Yeah, fuck that. Yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah. I have great stories, which I will save for another episode that we're going to do specifically on pharma and what I uncovered. But uh, that's for another episode coming up. (laughs) But I want to know about what you would do to lighten up because I think it's so important. Like I said in the article that I was reading earlier, uh, how they had that Zen room. I think everybody should have a Zen room, you know. Yeah, what we had was like a living room type of situation. You walk in and it felt like this is your best friend's living room, right? It what does your best really friend's good. living room look like? Because there Messy. are so many different... <laughs> <laughs> Messy. <laughs> <laughs> lived in. I should say lived in. Like, is that... Yeah. Um, no, but it just felt like, yeah, I could live here. You know, there was a kitchenette um, and... It worked because it wasn't that um, clinical setting where it's uh, um, um, professional looking. It worked because it looked like somebody's home. And there you felt comfortable. You felt safe. You could lie down. um, You could sit on the floor. I mean, we had uh, coloring books, puzzles. That's awesome. Yeah. and, And without that, no, there's no way you could do that job. Or if as as a volu- you know as volunteers, uh, you can't possibly um, process all the you know dark um, experiences that people tell you about, you know, without having this form of uh, either whether it's Zen or playful activities, you know, or just a really comfortable room where you could, you know, after a call, you know, where you could just relax for a few minutes and talk to other volunteers or staff. And debrief, right? Oh, yeah, so, definitely. So give us some examples because tell the stories that you were telling me yesterday. Oh, but how I would try to make them laugh, do a silly Yeah, thing. yeah. Um, yeah, so this thing, uh, I wish I had more time to actually give everybody um, a chair ride, you know? So is that the one I should talk about? Or yeah, something? you could tell that story. Okay. Um, so uh, one of the things was uh, I would give out, you know, the tickets that you usually get at the like, carnivals, you know, this tiny like rectangular you know, yellow or green or blue tickets. And I would pass them out and uh, say, okay, redeem it and find out what you win. And um, these are to your coworkers, right? Right. Coworkers, volunteers, anybody who was on, you know, on, um, or, um, on shift. You know? um, so, and then I would give them a chair ride, you know, um, I think I'm going to get into trouble if they actually find out. <laughs> if, I mean, like retroactively, I think I would get into trouble. Uh, I'm sure it violated some kind of office rule where you get like, okay, like, you know, like insurance wise, we can't have 
somebody you know push people around in a chair and you know, giving them ride um so but yeah uh something like that that's what else you know just putting on something simple as like a red clown nose right and or uh get one of those um you know you you blow bubbles you know um, yeah i love blowing bubbles yeah. i yeah i um it's a little bit of a health risk for us because sometimes the bubbles fall on the floor and make soapy stuff. But I haven't used my bubbles in a while. You just brought that up to me. Yeah. So, um, yeah. And, um, like putting, uh, googly eyes on people, stuff like that. <laughs> like little stickers. Well, googly eyes that, you know, the, you just yeah. stick them like on your forehead or, um, and um, that's that's something we did. So, how would your coworkers react to that? I mean, did they like it? Did, were they annoyed, or were you just? Um, did they always expect that from you? Because I'll give you an example. When I used to work at um, in a hospital, and I was starting my storytelling career, and I was writing, um, I, I was a very avid dater. Uh, and I had all these dating stories. And so all the nurses would stop by and they'd be like, do you have another dating story? <laughs> like uh, that was my thing. And that's how I started my storytelling career by telling dating stories to my coworkers. And they really enjoyed hearing that. And it was a nice break from the day, you mm -hmm. know, and it was something else that they had to focus on because uh, when you're taking care of sick kids on a pedia in a pediatric hospital, it, it can be very stressful. Um, and so, to have um, something to focus on and to change your uh, perception for a little bit right. really does help. It lightens the mood. Yeah, exactly. So, um, I mean, some some were really receptive to it, um, and I think after a few weeks of my wackiness and silliness, they sort of thought, okay. This guy is definitely cuckoo. We're just gonna let him do. <laughs> We're just gonna let him do his thing and just let him be. Uh, <laughs> like, okay, that's here, awesome. Here he, yeah, here he goes again. That kind of thing. Um, well, some people kind of looked at me weird, which is a compliment, or they call me <laughs> right to my face and go, "Thank you. That means so much to me." I, no, seriously. Like, please call me weird. If you don't call me weird, I, you know, <laughs> I'll get offended. Um, right. So, um, so funny. I got, I got, when I worked in the pharmaceutical area, which again, um, my humor didn't fit in there very well. I got um, written up for off color humor. <laughs> and I didn't know what that meant. So I had to Google it. And I was like, Ooh, it's like George Carlin and Shakespeare. They're off color humor. Oh my God. I'm in their league. That's super cool. I took it as a compliment. That is a compliment, especially George Carlin. Come on. Um, well, Shakespeare, I didn't know him in, you know, I didn't know him personally, but um, so I can't really say for sure. How, right. <laughs> um, or, or my uh, 12th grade uh, physics teacher used to pronounce his name Shakespeare, not Shakespeare. Shakespeare? <laughs> not Shakespeare. That's not my physics teacher. Why are you talking about Shakespeare in physics? Well, because my physics teacher was a, was a, uh, he was a class clown. <laughs> like he was the biggest joker. Um, and um, yeah, he would do all kinds of funny things. Anyway, I just, it just occurred to me. Wow. Okay. I don't, I forget his name, but I don't like to see how he's doing now. <laughs> Seriously. He really like affected your life, obviously. 
Um, uh, sort of. Well, sort of, yeah. right? But <laughs> it's okay to express your humor. I think we all need to laugh more. I mean, Life Ma- or um, Time Magazine put out uh, an issue a few months back on um, laughter and how important it is. So, are we going to laugh about? <laughs> no, never mind. Laugh about whatever, whatever. Other, yeah. Any I other mean. stories? Anything that um, really touched you, like a call that happened, um, or something that really moved you, or something that you remember that you can talk about? Oh yeah, um, it's kind of funny because uh, in preparation for this uh, podcast, um, I didn't know you know what or how I should prepare for it. So I just you know reminiscing about this and that, and um, I actually wrote down um, exactly uh, the answers to your question without knowing that you're going to ask that. And see, we're we're intuitive. We're we're like totally yeah. vibing. Yeah. yeah, you got you got my spidey sense. Yeah, my uh, ESPN you know. sense mm-hmm. going on there. So, um, no, it's, um, no, it's so that's just, how these podcasts work. They're very intuitive. Um, everybody that I've had on, no, seriously, just about everybody, it flows really, really well with the questions. They don't know. Sometimes I'll give out questions um, or I'll give out hints of, of what I'm thinking about asking, but usually it's a conversation that flows very, very well. Yeah, I, so. I really like this format. Um, so, um, so I'll mention all the good things uh there's good and bad in everything uh, and that's okay that that you know uh without um like who did i say what am i this is what i told one of my patients one day if there were no bad guys Mm -hmm. superman and batman they wouldn't have a job and the kid the kid had to think about it he's like you're right (laughs) because i was explaining to him gut bacteria and how we have bad bacteria and good bacteria and everything needs to keep in balance in your gut so that your gut remains healthy and so i explained to him in superhero fashion like without bad guys the good guys wouldn't have a job they'd be unemployed right they wouldn't be popular yeah and uh and the kid was like i never thought of that I know. So, like, these are like you know fully capable guys and gals uh, collecting unemployment. And Jesus, no, we don't want that. Superman collecting yeah. unemployment. Batman. <laughs> well, he's unemployed. I mean, what? How is he going to live? Captain America. I, exactly. Captain how, America would be. This is what he would be doing. Which this is what cat. This is what the superheroes in Hollywood do when they need money. Uh-huh. Is they go to the Walk of Fame. Mm-hmm. And they take pictures with, with the tourists and they charge them. Oh, right. Yeah. And I have a video. Um, you could go to the Rogue Nurse Media website, www.roguenursemedia.com. And there's a video of me. It's my little bit called The Nurse on the Street. And I went and interviewed these out of work superheroes on oh, the Walk of Fame. And Darth it. Vader, we did, there was a sword fight that we did. Excellent. Okay. <laughs> I got to try to take that out. So go ahead. Yeah. Um, the good and the bad and the ugly. Yeah. Um, oh, I'm ugly. I'm not sure about. Oh no, no I got ugly too. Yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> okay. So this is. I remember this call so vividly because this was like soon after I started, and I really didn't know what to say to, to this person um, because 
her story was so tragic. Um, and I, and, but she was doing all she can to help others with, um, this, you know, with similar kind of condition. Um, and uh, she was suffering from was like some chronic pain um, uh, illness. And um, I seriously, I have no idea what to say to her. And I just, I just said, no, um, thank you for doing that. You know, thank you for helping others. And she said, thank you for thanking me. And I just, I, I, it, it almost made me cry right there. Yeah, you're making me cry. Yeah, she said, thank you for thanking me. And it's just a, such a lovely thing for her to say to me. I, um, <laughs> I'm getting emotional talking. No, I, I, I could feel that. Um, yeah. But I think that's so important too, because in a lot of my reading, I feel that a lot of, well, what I've learned is a lot of the helplessness is because nobody is um, thanking people or uh, giving them praise, you know, for what they're doing, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, I mean, we are living in a narcissistic world where sometimes you just give and give and give and you're not feeling fulfilled. So um, that's what I found, but that's great. Yeah, and I didn't want to just say, oh, that's great, you know, that's wonderful, you know, that's because everybody says that, right? And it right. just seemed like such a, you know, dumb, um, a, a perfunctory thing to say, like, you know, that overused platitude. And so I really genuinely wanted to say, you know, how I was feeling to this lady. And um, I, and what, what came to me was, you know, thanking her. And it just somehow, elevated that call to another level when that and that's what she just needed to hear i think so yeah she, uh, so yeah so that was a good one um the next one was a it was a chat uh online chat it was a i think uh, some young teenager teenage boy and he's when when you do an online chat you have this opportunity to um, answer some questionnaire and leave a, leave a comment and I would never forget this uh, teenager's uh, comment. He said, this guy seems to give a shit. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, that could be your tagline. I give a shit. Yeah, thank you. He said, this guy seems to give a shit. It, it was such a lovely thing to hear from this um, troubled uh, you know, uh, teenage kid. Um, he definitely had issues. Uh, you know, it, it wasn't his fault. I mean, but I forget the details, but um, I just remember... You know, he definitely needed help. And just for him to tell me, yeah, hey, you know, that's, that's, I guess he never, you know, hears any kind of encouraging word from anybody. And so, yeah, that really um, stuck uh, in, my, in my mind. Um, uh, let's see. Um, now, next one, this one. Oh, yeah, this one's my favorite because even I don't know how this happened. Um, and uh, by this time, I was a pretty seasoned counselor. You know, I've taken thousands of calls. Um, and um, this young teenage um, girl, uh, she got on the phone, and you could tell she was having this severe anxiety attack just by the way she sounded. So, but somehow, um, within 10 minutes, she, I got her to laugh. And that was it. Her anxiety was gone, and she said, I don't know how you did that. And I'm thinking, I don't know how I did that. <laughs> I don't know how it happened. It happened. But with some callers, you have that connection. 
Right. Um, and the rapport. Oh, by the way, rapport is such an important thing that's stressed so much during our training. You got to build that rapport. And so how put, do you do that? That's a, that's a great point that you bring up. How do you build rapport with someone who is feeling depressed, not feeling great about their life and wanting to end their life? Yeah, so that's where uh, training really kicks in. Um, and um, we call it um, like sitting in the darkness with them. You know, you got to be in the darkness with them. And if you are afraid to go deep into their um, dark cave or whatever the darkness is surrounding them, it's, um, it's, I would say maybe it's a little dangerous to go too deep because you get affected, but uh, you have to go there. You have to be right next to them um, in that lonely, dark place where they're all alone. They can't see anything. It's interesting that you bring up the word cave um, and going to that dark place. Uh, I've done um, some shamanic training in uh, my practice, my personal practice. Um, And when a shaman does a journey with someone, okay, they're trying to heal some type of soul loss. Uh, and what they do is they do this journey with this person to go find pieces of their soul. And a lot of times is they go into a cave mm. um, and, and stuff and, and whatever this person is going through either depression or a loss of some kind or whatever, they'll go back to where that soul was left behind and they'll um, speak to the soul and, and coax it very nicely to come back or that they don't have to be afraid anymore or whatever the trauma is or whatever the feeling is that they pick up. But it's very much kind of almost the same thing as going to that space mm-hmm. with these people. Yeah, because it's enclosed, it's dark, you know, um, it could be damp, you know, everything wrong with a cave, right? Uh, like Star Wars, you know, I think... Right? Isn't there a cave that uh, Luke goes into to see Darth Vader, and then it's him? I think when the mask is off, like it's all kind. You know, it's that mythology. I think that's um, very interesting because Luke is the light. That's what uh, Luke, you know, means. And then Darth Vader, he's the darkness. So it's the light going into the dark. Yeah, um, but I, I'm not a Star Wars fan. By I'm not. Star I'm not too much either. I just remember from. I haven't seen the movie in a very long time, but I think, I, I think it's a great analogy. Life. We lost half the audience right now. When I I'm not <laughs> I a Star Wars fan. Star Wars fan? I'm a Trekkie. God damn it, I'm a Trekkie. So, <laughs> right, we just got like 50% back, but you know, they're different <laughs> uh, people now. Um, um, but yeah, I mean, Joseph Campbell. Uh, right, Plato, Joseph Campbell, The Hero's Journey, very good. Uh, that's uh, writing, yeah. yeah Plato's uh, Allegory of the Cave. Um, yeah, it, so I think you know, man cave. Um. The man cave. Yes. So is that where the man cave comes from? Like where men go to retreat and just to like dress? That's kind of interesting. But yeah, the the concept of cave, like, you know, Batman's, uh, Batman's cave. Right. So yeah, really interesting how that is a repeating motif, um, at least in you know, in America or Western culture. I don't know about other countries, but yeah, definitely here, cave plays a big role. Yeah, it's something interesting to look into. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so you go to that space, you talk them 
back, right? Well, that's where you build rapport. Like by, you got to make them feel that someone is actually next to them. You know, even though it's over the phone, you, you got to do everything you can to make sure that they feel that they're not alone. And you have to make sure that I'm someone that they can trust and just open up and, you know, like no holds, no holds bar, right? Just tell me everything about what you're feeling because you can trust me. And when that happens, then it's much, then you can try to suggest, hey, you know, um, perhaps, um, because you know, everybody's different. So, so for some people, it could be medication. For some people, it could be therapy or a combination of therapy and medication or just getting in touch with their friends again. And so you got to find whatever it is that that will get them out of the cave or at least let them see that they're not completely in that darkness alone. Um, so, and you could only do that by being there together with them and building rapport. It's very fascinating. It's interesting. I just want to go over uh, some of the research that I pulled um, and uh, how people can help or how to notice if somebody is um, on the verge of suicide. Uh, and there's five main concepts here. And this is from psychology today that I pulled um, with this podcast. I do pull from uh, PubMed. Uh, peer-reviewed articles, and I also pull whatever is in the general public and the general media so that we know what our patients and, and what people are looking at and reading. So here are the five points that um, Psychology Today puts out is personality changes, uncharacteristically angry, anxious, agitated, or moody, withdrawal or isolation from people, neglect, self-care, engage in risky behavior, and uh, overcome with hopelessness and overwhelmed by circumstances. Right. And I uh, just want to throw in right now that everybody can go to suicideispreventable.org. So that's um, mm-hmm. suicideispreventable.org. And that's a starting point for anybody who wants to help someone uh, who might be thinking about suicide. Um, Excellent. And I just want to go over one more study, which I thought was interesting. Um, so lately, because we were kind of talking about who actually calls, um, and there, there's a study that I pulled, and it's B, uh, from that BMJ journal, um, Behavioral... I forgot. <laughs> so BMJ journal. Uh, so basically, late life suicidal behaviors among new users of antidepressants, prospective population-based study of sociodemographic and factors in those age 75 and above, it showed that suicidal behaviors occurred more commonly among new users who were younger, old adults, and those with foreign backgrounds, suggesting that those groups might require greater support when initiating antidepressant therapy. So did you also find... People who started taking antidepressants, maybe they stopped their meds. Did they ever talk about that? I stopped my meds. I don't feel good. Mm-hmm. Um, was that something common that you got? Um, I wouldn't say common, but I, I did hear right callers say, you know, I don't want to be on my meds, or I think my meds uh, is um, uh, making it worse. And uh, again, I'm, I'm not a therapist. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a mm-hmm. psychiatrist. So 
all I know about it is based on what my callers have told me. And um, I, yeah, I remember receiving calls like that. Um, but um, yeah, I think this is, I mean, that, that I think uh, points to the importance of um, making sure that you always uh, consult your doctor. You know, if you're, you're worried, yeah, just go talk to your doctor, you know, or therapist. Don't, please don't try to. Yeah, I think that's a great point is like suicide hotline is also great, but it's not enough, which is what my research has said that you need to also consult a healthcare professional, mm -hmm. mental health care professional right. and get help. No. Right. And um, uh, to add on to that, you know, this is something that uh, a lot of us, uh, you, know, at, um, you know, volunteers and you know, um, crisis on councils, uh, um, we try to tell people, look, um, when you break your arm, what do you do? And they say, well, I go to the hospital, I go see my doctor. Exactly. So when you are not feeling well, mental, you know, mental health wise, you go see a doctor who specializes in that, and you know that's that's your therapist, that's your psychiatrist, and um, um, I mean that's just a watered down version of what we tell. Uh, I mean we tell in a much nicer way. <laughs> we don't just right. say, yeah, you know, go see a therapist. Uh, right. No, that would be wrong to do. But no, yeah. So um, when you can't see something, right? Because mental health, you know, it's not something you you see like a physical injury, and um, and that's where people. Um, I think um, have really easy time trying to like hide it, and all, you know, and people who are trying to help them, you know, uh, have a hard time seeing that people are suffering because you, you can't see with your eyes. Right, and there's such a, a big stigma with mental health, and there are, you know, awareness is great now. It, it, people are talking about it more. I think people are doing more. I mean, we had our admitted storytelling show. I co-produced with my friend Chris Corbell in September, uh, where we had several storytellers telling their stories about being admitted into a mental health facility uh, and getting treated and what the effects were. Uh, and, and there was different age, age ages that we had with the storytelling, which was very fascinating and very interesting. Uh, and it just starts the conversation and it just brings greater awareness of what we need. And I feel that everybody has a little bit of something. I mean, especially life is much, much more stressful now than it was 10, 20, and even 30 years ago. Right. Uh, and um, it seems like technology should be making everything easier. It's <laughs> not exactly true. It just makes, it seems to be worse with more bullying, uh, people getting angry uh, and triggers right. and all that. Yeah. And with what's going on with social media. Mm -hmm. So, but working at, I mean, there are several suicide hotlines uh, run by different organizations. And you said there's not enough. I don't think there's enough. Um, because just based on the call volume we had, I mean, no, or, or maybe there are enough centers, but not enough volunteers. I'm not sure. Um, but um, I, I think that more people um, should volunteer. Um, the thing is, not everybody will qualify. That's the thing. Um, just because you go through the training doesn't mean that you automatically become, uh, you can, you know, actually take calls. Um, so um, if anybody out there after listening to this, or if they were thinking about um, volunteering um, at a suicide prevention center, um, depending on where you go, so I don't know whether the format is the same, but 
if you want to be a volunteer um, and let's say you end up on a shift that you don't really like, um, it might be difficult for you to switch to another shift, but try to do it because every shift um, could have a really different vibe. And um, don't be afraid to look for the one that really connects with you because that's, that is the key to being a, a really good counselor. Um, because if you, if you don't like the people on your shift, uh, if you don't like the supervisor, like don't suffer through it. If you can, please look for the one that resonates with you. Just wanted to throw that in. That's a great um, point and perspective that you put out there because it's only going to increase your job satisfaction and your satisfaction with volunteering. It's going to make you happy to go to work. If you are, you, you do find, um, a shift that you can resonate with and people that you work with that um, are supportive and are helpful when you need them. Yeah, that, that could be the difference between, you know, um, you staying sane and going nuts yourself because if nobody's there to support you after a difficult call, then you got to handle that all by yourself and that's not kosher. You know, people who are there should be there to help you a work through some difficult you know, calls. So, yeah. Um, so, no, definitely look after yourself. So, how does how do these suicide hotlines get funded? I know um, the one in Atlanta that I was reading about that gets funded by the state. Uh, and and are these all private companies? Uh, are they federally funded? Do you know? Um, I had no involvement in that, but um, as far as I understand, it's, uh, yeah, it could be from like the Department of, um, um, I think there's, uh, isn't it Department of Mental Health? I'm pretty sure there's one. Uh, yeah, the yeah. Department of Mental Health. Uh-huh. Uh, it could be, I, I think some funding comes from there. I'm not sure, but definitely uh, private donations, uh, fundraising, I believe, um, and, um, you know, that, that, that was all up to like the middle management. So I right, right. So I was not really sure where the uh, where the funding really came from. I just was really I was just curious. Um, so all of this working in the suicide prevention hotline has made you want to pursue a different career, like a career in mental health, correct? Right. So going back to how I landed this job in the first place, um, yeah, it, to me, I took it as a sign that the universe was. Um, giving me like some sort of like road sign to follow. Um, So yeah, I'm gonna, so I, uh, I fully embrace that and uh, I'm gonna go back to school and uh, um, study uh, psych and psychology and um, see what happens. Awesome. Well, congrats (laughs) and good luck to you. And thank you, Ian, for joining us on the show. Is there anything you want to Add comments, maybe um, some suicide prevention hotline numbers that people can call. Do you have any, what, what like the main one? I, I know um, there's a national one, right? Yeah, 800-273-TALK. Um, and uh, if you just Google suicide prevention, it will come up. And Google is very, actually Google is very good at um, giving out that number. So um, a lot of callers would say, oh yeah, I was just actually searching for how to kill myself. And then this number oh. came up. Oh, wow. Oh, that's a common thing to hear. Oh, yeah. 
How can I kill? How to kill myself? Yeah, and then I wow. believe, you know, Google, I, I believe, uh, will you know, show the um, uh, 800 number. Um, and so Google, yeah, Google is really good at um, um, preventing suicide, or at least um, they're doing their part. So um, yeah, so uh, just Google. Uh, it doesn't have to be the national number. Just um, just call or talk to somebody i would that that's the main message you know don't keep it inside um and find whoever will listen to you you know and if you got nobody then yeah call the 800 number because um, it's 24 hours so somebody will answer just it might take five minutes but just hang on and somebody will answer so i guess that that's the last thing i want to mentioned. Great. Well, thank you for being a guest on the show. Uh, It was a a very interesting conversation. I learned a lot as well as our nurses and hypochondriacs (laughs) listeners. I'm sure they have. And um, thank you for being on the show again. And uh, so last minute, which was awesome. (laughs) Uh, Our first episode for our Movember series and thank you again for listening and promoting this podcast those of you who have doing have been doing that uh go ahead and give us a rating on itunes we appreciate your support five stars yes please yes please five stars we have 22 ratings so far uh that would be great we we sure would need your support if you'd like to donate to us our nurses and hypocon um Links to Venmo are on the site uh, on iTunes and also to our GoFundMe at our Nurses and Hypochondriacs GoFundMe page. And you can follow us on Instagram, Rogue Nurse Media, on Twitter, Nurses and Hypocon, and on Facebook on our Nurses and Hypochondriacs page. And thank you once again. And until next time, be safe.